Well, hello, this is Insight with Political Tours, the travel company led and run by correspondents around the world. Little Britain is having a wonderful summer, a government in chaos as ministers resign by the dozen, then yet another Tory party leadership election as the queues of traffic stretch for miles from England's ports in the sweltering heat. Needless to say, us Brits are split down the middle on who's to blame for all of this, so we've turned to two foreign correspondents based here to get their view on Boris, Brexit and Britain over the past few years of his tenure at number 10. Those correspondents are Latika Bork with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Hello, Latika. Hello, Nicholas. And Tristan Bourbeau-Dupin, the London correspondent for La Croix. Hello, Tristan. Hello, Nicholas. Good to have you both with us. This is going to be fun, this one. Um, let's, we've got tons to talk about. Uh, we want to get a long-term perspective on things here, but let's just start some of the recent nitty-gritty. Um, I presume you've both been covering the Tory party leadership uh, competition, if you like. Um, is there any interest, Latika? Yes, huge interest in Australia. I mean, Boris Johnson's been a very big character in Australia for many, many years, not least because uh, the so-called Wizard of Oz, Linton Crosby, advises Boris Johnson and was really kind of known in Australia for shepherding Boris Johnson as London mayor behind all those stunts. And, of course, Boris back then was seen as this wizard himself of political communication, someone who could really brand himself as a buffoon but somehow get away with it and be also taken as, as quite intelligent. Um, so between, of course, London Mayor Days and, and now, I think that story has certainly changed in Australia. I think the perception of Boris Johnson is to lump him in that category of populist male leaders who committed acts of self-harm on their country. And so there's been a, a lot of interest, particularly Partygate. I mean, that was something, COVID was something Australia took so, so seriously. So to see a prime minister uh, conduct parties in his official work residence and then kind of get away with it for as long as he did. When I was back in Australia in May, I had cabinet ministers in the Australian government just saying to me openly, how on earth has he not had to resign or been forced out by now? Um, so there was a lot of shock about that. And certainly I think that that was shock registered at the highest levels and, and down to the bottom. So when the day came and he was eventually turfed out, uh, I was live blogging that for us and a huge, huge numbers on our reads. Letika, I find that absolutely fascinating because the response from um, many people here on the right is, look, it's just a few parties. You know, the guy was getting on with a job, you know, during lockdown. Didn't you see your neighbours once in a while? Didn't you break the rules? We all broke the rules in some way or other. So it's fair enough for them. Look, that's actually something I've had to try and explain to Australians. And I think that's not even so much a political difference. That's really a cultural difference around one rule making and breaking and two, just how seriously Australia took COVID. I mean, they eliminated that virus through really, really tough and harsh measures. So the idea of the prime minister and his own staff flouting the rules and then getting away with it for as long as they did, mm. it's almost impossible to explain that sort of a scenario to a country where if, you know, you left your house, your neighbours would dog on you and it would be taken super seriously. Well, I want to come back to you about the leadership competition in a, in a, in a second, but you've, you've given us a, a, a good uh, Australian perspective on, on what Boris has been doing in the last couple of years. Just, on, just to echo what Latika has been saying, I mean, what, what did the French make of, of Boris and Partygate? Well, the thing is, if it would have been in France, it, it would never have been the same like this. Like, I'm sure the French would have been like, he did so and what? Because if you look at the numbers, it's like 13 parties. He was part of three or four of those. And I'm sure in France, it would have been nothing. It would have disappeared. The thing is, it could have disappeared if he, if he wouldn't have died, lied. If he wouldn't have said that I know nothing about the parties, I was not there. Even in England, I think he could have gone away. He just so he was just stupid me. enough to be caught. That's what you're saying. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite shocked to hear you say this, Tristan. No, it's not even stupid to be caught. It's, uh, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So, so what, I mean, I mean we, we've had a pretty, I mean, I, I know that the, the French are amused by Boris, but don't take him seriously as a, as a, as a politician. Um, and so there must be interest in the story generally. But just tell us about the current leadership. Are they, are they interested in who runs the Tory party next? Is that, does that um, take yes. up much column inches? No, no, they are very much interested. 
as Letica said, maybe because Boris was such a big character that they want to know who could replace someone who was so massively important and everybody wanted to know what Boris was doing. We know that if this is Rishi Sunak or his trust, the interest would be much lower. There is no doubt about this. I will have to write much less article about the political scene. But they want to know the country is in a mess. Brexit is still around. Mm. The economically, it's not going great. They want to see what is, what is happening and how the Conservative Party can re get born again in a way, find a new way to find to yeah find a new way after after David Cameron, Theresa May, mm. Boris Johnson, and a new prime minister in in six years. How can they do that? Okay, I, 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 mean, I would say, needless to say, perhaps for the, the French, the, the idea of, of someone breaking away from the U European Union must have been, you know, it's cataclysmic. It's sort of undermined that idea of further integration and the idea that someone's moving away from it, um, you know, rock, rocks boat enormously. And so do, is, do, you, do you see the French electorate sharing that sort of anger? I mean, if, you're, if you believe, if you're in the commission, if you're part of those elites that help create European decision-making, there is anger with Britain. They think, you know, you've actually undermined us in a significant way. Is that something that's shared, you think, by your readers? Yes, this is massive. Because we have to remember, for France and a lot of big European countries, the EU is really at the core of the political being, in a way. Yeah. Like, and so breaking away from the EU, it means, like, putting in, like, putting in danger the own way... The it's political... existential. It's, exactly. it's fundamental. Yeah. Existential way of, of all the political seeing themselves and are conducting policies. And so that's why also Boris Johnson had a very bad image and is hated by a lot of, a lot of my uh, French counterparts and a lot of my colleagues, in fact. But Lester, you've written, actually wrote a biography of, of Boris Johnson yes, um, aimed at a French audience. Yes. And it's interestingly trying to actually explain the phenomenon of Boris and yes. why he fitted with the British electorate. Yeah, exactly. My book is about uh, the history of Brexit going back to Margaret Thatcher and talking to diplomats to see what was the relationship between the UK and the rest of the EU and also Germany and France through the life of Boris Johnson. So it was a way to explain what, Bor what Boris was, but also what Brexit was. Because mm -hmm. for, the, for the French, Brexit is something that they still don't understand. They still yeah. believe that people who vote to Brexit are complete idiots. They're all racist and idiots. And I'm like, it's much more complicated than this. And even, even six years later, yeah. well, I'm still the same image. And I still have the same image of Boris Johnson. And that's why... I, I can like clearly some of, some of my colleagues in Paris and in London were very happy that Boris was kicked out because they were like, it's great. The guy was, was a devil mm. and is out. And yeah, the, the, the... yeah, it means all, everything is done. It was so bad for Europe and we are so happy yeah. though. Okay, okay. So we've got some reflections. Uh, Latik, I mean, I think in contrast to that, I would say, and we, were, we were talking earlier about this, probably more sympathy among Australians um, on, on some key motivations for why people did vote for Brexit. Yes, I think it's um, it's probably two-pronged in Australia the way that it's viewed Brexit. Certainly there's absolutely a class that thinks Brexit was an act of economic self-harm, and I think that is objectively the case. I mean, even if you talk to Eurosceptics in Britain, they would admit that it was always going to have economic damage. Their argument is that it's worth it in the long run. So there's definitely that view. But I think the idea of border, the idea of controls, the idea of not having freedom of movement, the idea that people don't just walk into a country and automatically get uh, the right to work, live and, and claim benefits. That's very, very innate to the Australian psyche for better or worse. And so there is a, a lot of understanding and recognition of that British desire to control borders, control migration flow and set its migration according to its own economic needs. Um, but I'd say that's probably where it ends because I think the Tories are actually making a very big mistake where they're going with migration. 
generation. They want all the Australian harshness, all the Australian meanness and the soundness of that. They're actually not capable of implementing a policy anywhere near as awful as what Australia does to kind of stop migrant boats, for example. But on the other side, they're also not, in my view, running skilled migration in the way that their economy needs. And one of the great tricks of the Liberal Prime Minister, uh, John Howard, so Liberals, of course, in Australia are right wing, um, was that he actually ran the highest skilled migration program in history, I think. And he did that by controlling borders. So if you go to the public and say, yes, we've got full control of the borders, we let in, in fact, his famous line is, you know, we will decide who comes in the manner in which they decide. Um, if you do that, you can actually run really skilled, uh, high, strong, uh, skilled migration numbers. Now, the UK is not doing that. And I think this is a really, really big mistake because labour shortages are everywhere in Australia. I like it, Latika. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, is it just a um, technical um, incompetence, lack of know-how, experience? What do you put that down to? I think Pretty Patel is misguided. I honestly think it's ideological. I think she wants to look very tough. She wants to look mean. I think she'd fit right in at home in Australia, to be honest. Uh, but it's not its not um, economically sound. Put the morality aside of all of these arguments. It's just not what Britain needs. Britain is crying out for hospitality workers. Britain is crying out for some of these workers that they have lost in the EU. And you do need to run that supply side on migration. Now, it's all very well to say, well, if we constrain migration will put up wages. In Australia, we're having exactly this problem because we actually cut off all our migration during the pandemic when we shut the borders to all incoming and outgoing traffic. And so now we've got record low unemployment. I think it's around 3.4%. And they're complaining about not training skills. You have hit the point where you can't get any more people into employment. And now if you go to Australia, I had a meal when I was there on a Sunday, you get surcharged uh, Sunday levy because there's penalty rates. They can't find staff to hire if they're even open at all. Uh, a lot of Sydney was actually shut on key nights. One of the reasons of that is because there's just simply not the hospitality staff around. And I really do fear that Britain's making uh, a mistake, but in their case, it's actually deliberate and out of very, very misguided intentions. Tristan, one of the other legacies of Brexit was the determination by the Conservative parties to give those people that voted for Brexit, um, many of them in Labour heartlands, the boost, and it's called the levelling up, um, loosely termed. I've not quite fully understood what the policy is. As your, um, partly for your book, but also to try and understand this policy, you took um, a couple of trips. I'm actually in Cornwall at the moment, that's an area you visited, and also Hull. Can you tell us a bit about what you found there, but then also make an assessment of Boris's levelling up agenda, whether it's actually worked or not? Clearly, all the people that I met were telling me, we, we need to see changes. We need to see that the government investing in, in our area that has been forgotten for the last few decades. And we want to see things coming up from, from the ground. We want to see bringing works because it means that the government will have started to do something. And so you're talking about that. infrastructure projects, exactly. actually concrete right. development, if you like. Of course, it is hospitals, new roads, it is new schools. They want to see their daily life get better with having more public services, more infrastructures. Of course, they all know that during the pandemic for a year and a half, everything was stopped. So, they, but you know, which I'm sure that in two years time when the next election should, should happen, mm. people will have forgotten and say, what has this government done in five years? And not much because of the pandemic until now, uh, but they want things, well, they want to see that government wasn't lying to them so mm. much. And that, the, and that the life will get better. It's also part of the Brexit deal in a way. When, when, because what Boris Johnson said in the beginning was like, um, we are doing Brexit to get your life better. And that's when I, I was there already before the referendum and I, when I met people in the streets, they were telling me, we know that Brexit will be a self-arm economically in the short term. But a lot of people told me, like workers told me, I'm, I'm doing this for my kids because I think that in the long term, the country will get better. There will be more in, in investment in infrastructure and it will be better. And this is, leveling up is just a really in concretization of, of Brexit in a way. 
I know that in some of your reporting, you've noted that, in actual fact, um, salaries have gone up at a higher rate under Boris Johnson's government and also in government employment as well. Yes, especially in the NHS. Like the figures I found were, I was very, very surprised by them. Between the beginning of uh, David Cameron, so, so May 2010, and the end of Theresa May, so July 2019, the number of employees in the NHS went up only 6%. And only in the nine months until the pandemic, Boris Johnson and then Boris Johnson it went up three percent, and in for the three years he was in power, it went up nine percent in number of, of workers. So it's more than the two previous prime minister. In so you're saying that prime. acceleration um, started already before before the pandemic. Yeah, I, I guess exactly. it's quite difficult to actually put that down to policy. We know that the NHS has this incredible need to absorb funds and also workers. So it's exactly. hard to see. But that's interesting because it shows that Boris Johnson is not the extreme politician and radical politician France believe is, for example, and European believe is. Because they look, they, for, for Europeans, Boris Johnson means Brexit. So they're like, Brexit is radical move. So all his policies are radical. He's not. Look, he, he showed there that you were investing in public services. Not everywhere, of course, but he was trying to do it. Remember about the NHS, the, um, what was it? the high speed, the HS2. So the, the high speed to Manchester, Leeds. Yeah. And he wanted to invest and to have two ways high speed to Earl. And it's Rishi Sunak who said, no, Boris, you can't have all the money. I'm cutting the budget by 30%. It won't go quick to, to Leeds for at least 20 more years. So it's very interesting because he wanted to invest, but his own party, didn't want to. Um, Boris said mission largely accomplished. Um, Latika, in on, on leveling up, I mean, is that, I mean, what would you see as his main accomplishments for the last two, two, three years? I mean, obviously Brexit in itself is the key thing that he, he delivered and, he, and got um, uh, delivered a very hard version. That's the main, the key promise. But beyond that, what? I think the vaccine program, I mean, from a country that took COVID really seriously and then had huge problems getting its population vaccinated, I think it's gone very unheralded just what an achievement Britain had here because they started the pandemic very badly, but at the same time where they were letting the virus go, thinking it was going to be something more akin to a flu than a, a SARS virus, um, they were already uh, pumping money into AstraZeneca, the Oxford University project to get a vaccine going. And that story is really not told as well as it should be. Uh, they did absolute bureaucratic miracles to make sure that the regulators were on step with Sarah Gilbert and her team in Oxford getting that vaccine ready and going and then gave it to the world at cost. And then countries like mine turned their noses up at that vaccine and said, no, we'll have Pfizer. And then the UK went and gave Australia 4 million Pfizer's um, because the Australians wouldn't take AstraZeneca. It's just incredible. Well, what do you put that down to? Why do you think the world did turn its nose up at AstraZeneca? What was the, the, um, what were the decisions that um, affected that? <laughs> Well, I think it's probably better to look at what the British did that other countries didn't do, and that was we had very responsible media reporting around vaccination. And I very remember, uh, clearly remember when there was the first clotting death of AstraZeneca here in the UK. I think it was the Telegraph that had the front-page story of that man's family saying, please continue to take your AstraZeneca, it will save our lives. Now, that did not happen in Australia. There was a tabloid there that had, uh, I'm not joking, a full-page photo of a blood clot saying Astra Hill. Um, so one difference was the media. I think the media in the UK on that aspect covered itself with absolute glory. And the other thing I would say is that it was very critical that mandates weren't mandated here. I think if you look at all the countries that took COVID a lot more seriously than the UK and then went on to mandate vaccines, they've had enormous social problems. They've had trucker convoys. They've had huge rebellions and protests. And even when I visited Australia, there's still a very big COVID divide going on there between people who want to kind of move on to a position mm. where the UK is and people who still think everyone should be wearing masks. And but how, how much do you put that down to Boris's leadership or how much do you, I mean, you could attribute it to, um, you know, there were key civil servants who led that campaign. There was a, a highly developed, 
developed you know university and medical system that was behind that we have got a oh, absolutely the, the infrastructure was there but you had a prime minister who knew the way out was going to be science-led not border-led and in my country, the complete opposite was true. They were a country. How do you, how do you explain that contrast with Boris, who's very paved, you know, fast and quick with words on many things, but then with, well, we know in his own behaviour when it came to, to, to the, the parties, but in actual terms of de delivering the messaging that was necessary, he was spot on. Yeah, I, I think Boris is at heart a, a liberal elite. You know, he's a metropolitan elite who likes riding his bike around London and uh, has now become a green energy convert and loves the classics. I mean, you can't get more elite than Boris Johnson. He just happens to talk the language in a way that is uh, very powerful, emotive and connects with people. He has an emotional connection with the public. And I actually think the Tories are going to regret what they've done. I don't think what we have seen from Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will even be a skerrick of what Boris Johnson was capable of on a great day. And when he is great, he is very great, to quote Rishi Sunak. So I think the vaccine project's gone really unheralded in terms of government achievement here. It's remarkable that we have a very high vaccination rate with no mandates. We had no vaccine passports really in the UK and everyone went and took their vaccines. That is not something that happened automatically or innately in other Western yeah. countries that were comparable. Yeah. And um, but in terms of the other two achievements, I think really Boris only had, I'll never forget an MP saying to me, you know, Boris had two jobs. One was to win the election and stop Jeremy Corbyn and the other was to deliver Brexit. And now he's done those. Our time with him is up. And that was about maybe 18 months ago. I think the party was always going to exhaust itself of Boris Johnson far sooner than he would exhaust himself of the constraints of government and the constraints of discipline involved with that. Um, so I don't think it's a surprise that they've rolled him before an election. I mean, yeah. it's, in, it's incredible political orthodoxy to think that you can win an 80-seat majority and that doesn't even buy you a full term in power anymore. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Listen, I want to get um, questions, people, um, and get them in soon. So please do start putting those questions in the Q&A box and we can turn to, um, you can put your questions directly to our panellists. Just on, you were nodding away there um, and, and I wanted to, I mean, why? What was your, the regret that they're getting rid of him? They got rid of a good leader? I mean, it, it would so, seem to me, we still don't know what Brexit means. We don't know what so, the vision is. They've yet to deliver it after six years and how long, seven years? Since, since the vote. First, I'll come back to your question to Latika about AstraZeneca. Yeah. Clearly, in France, AstraZeneca was a political move from Macron and the German uh, Chancellor to criticize AstraZeneca because it was coming from the UK. And that's clearly. a Brexit thing. That was just it is, basically. It is a Brexit thing. Clearly. Amazing. Because Amazing. for Emmanuel Macron, yeah. using Brexit to the British is electorally and politically a good move from him. He had the election this year. And if you look for, for, the, for the last year or so, Emmanuel Macron, who in fact is a good friend with Boris Johnson, they get along very well on human terms. He was hitting on Boris Johnson and Brexit every other week because he knew, he knew that for, his elect, for, for electoral, electoral reasons, internal politics, it was a good way to gain votes. And AstraZeneca was, was clearly something like that. It was like, we have to eat Brexit. And if, if you remember, they started to criticize AstraZeneca when there was nothing. There was no reason to criticize AstraZeneca. Yeah. So clearly it was a political move. So it, was a, it was a victim of Brexit. I have no doubt about this. Okay, that's amazing. I also think it's dumb. it's worth pointing out that the model of Big Pharma would have been completely busted if AstraZeneca had been successful. If you have research institutions giving away vaccines at cost for the first two to three years when there's a national pandemic, I don't think you would see billions of dollars into your bottom line as some of the uh, pharma companies received. And I have no problem with that. I think it's it's great that we ask the commercial sector to come up with solutions for us. But I think it's also worth pointing out that there were certainly uh, strong interests and reasons to demolish the case for AstraZeneca and that model. 
Okay. Um, just on hold your thoughts on conservative leadership and direction just for a moment. Um, Latik, it, 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 we were talking about this earlier. It's noticeable that the new Australian government has had very little to do with uh, the British government, you know, what, despite even before this, um, before Boris was removed, if you like. Yes, yeah, so we had a change of government in May uh, from a conservative or liberal centre-right government to Labor, um, and that brought them out of the political wilderness. Uh, they lost government in 2013. Now, Labor, uh, particularly this generation of Labor, is certainly a Republican party. Uh, they would, if it was up to them, have a referendum tomorrow, but they wouldn't win a referendum tomorrow, so they're not going to hold a referendum tomorrow. But interestingly, one of the first acts of the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was to appoint a Republic Minister, and that's something that's never happened. And his job is to try and build the case for that in any second Labor term. Now, usually governments get a second term. So within four years, it's not unrealistic to think Australia could be asking itself the question again that at last asked in 1999, do you want to have an Australian head of state. And by that time, things might be very different because we may not have the very uh, much-loved Queen, very popular in Australia. We might have Prince Charles, who's definitely not as popular in Australia and, dare I say, definitely not as popular in Britain on the throne. Mm -hmm. And I do think you're having a, a bit of an existential questioning around the value of some of the institutions that, that Britain has given us, not least the Commonwealth. Um, so... The, the, the Labor government, for instance, in Australia has still not appointed a High Commissioner to Australia. This role in London is seen as one of the big plum jobs that new administrations divvy out to their favoured, uh, perhaps to old foes or old friends who've been waiting in the sidelines in the political wilderness for a, a plum job. Still, it's been about three months and no one's been sent. That to me is... Why? why? That seems really bizarre. Is that to send a message? Or, I, mean, I, don't, get I don't think it's necessarily deliberate, but I think it reflects their foreign policy priorities and Britain's just not up there. Um, the new government's hit the ground flying since they came into office. They have gone to Asia. They have gone mm. to Europe. Uh, they have gone to um, many summits, the G20. They went to the Quad in Tokyo. They've gone to the Pacific Islands Forum. They're trying to make the point we see our future in Asia. And that's that's not particularly a revelation or revolutionary for Australia, but to not have had a single ministerial visit here, I think that is becoming a little direct. Right. Okay. Tristan, let's just go back to that, that last thought we had, which was about the direction of the Conservative Party. Um, you, when Latika said they might come to regret losing Boris, you're nodding your head, you're not, your head vigorously, but also the, the sense of, uh, of the purpose. What, what are the Conservatives here to do? They've delivered Brexit in terms of we've left the European Union, but then we still, where are we heading? What are, what's the course that we're meant to be travelling? I suppose that's part of the, what the leadership contest is about. The thing for me is... Uh... Uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are completely disconnected from the public, from the British public. They are too Thatcherite, uh, very radical or a bit softer in a way for, uh, for Rishi Sunak. But we have to remember that Brexit and the overall public with the pandemic now wants more investment uh, in public services. They are ready to pay a bit more taxes than before. And you have two candidates who are only talking about tax cuts and we don't talk about investment, we don't talk about public services. And I think, well, for me, at the moment, if there is no change of direction from what they are saying now, they will lose power, the Tories will lose power in two years' time. Um, Boris Johnson was the only conservative who understood this new move to the left economically of the British public. And his party, and as Latika said, they, they got enough. They were like, you know what? After a year and a half, he's done his job. We have to, we have to get it to kick him out because he's not real Tories. He has, he has always been outside, perceived as a weirdo in a way, mm. because he's not a touch right. And for me, I have, well, if, as I said, if the direction is the same, the Labour will be in power in two years' time because. It would be 14 years of, of Tories, another austerity uh, after the pandemic, yeah. 
nobody can stand this. Yeah, Latika, selling selling the Thatcherite story probably works with 160,000 Tory party members, but it really doesn't work with a broader electorate. So what, what do you think they need to do and do you see them doing it? I think the difficulty with the Conservatives is that they don't want to have the conversation they're shadowing and, and skirting around, which is, is capitalism broken. And it's really noticeable that they're not talking about two issues that are absolutely critical to the public. One is housing. There is an absolute, to use that kind of extremist language, there is an absolute emergency generationally in people not being able to secure or afford uh, housing, whether that's even purchasing it or renting it. We're at the stage where people can't even rent decent housing for themselves. Now, this is something that also is the case in Australia. We just had some OECD figures coming out showing it's completely generational. We've never had a, an, a generation before that has found it so difficult to get into housing. Now, that's the same here, I would argue. And if you're going to say to two, three generations after you, Great, but sorry, bad luck. You can never have your own piece of capital in the economy that we're fighting about over Thatcher's legacy. There's no point. That capital does not exist for the next future generations. The other thing is climate change. I mean, I think the UK is an outstanding leader on the rhetoric of climate change. Uh, and, you know, I fully back the net zero positioning that they've done. I think it's a really good example for a country like mine, which has been a laggard on this. But the UK clearly needs to do more. It should be at the forefront of the scientific innovation, the same kind that gave us the AstraZeneca vaccine. Where are they on this conversation? Where are they talking about how they will spur that economy? I just don't see it happening. Instead, they're having this weird debate about whether tax cuts will lead us into recession or not. I think that argument is lost, and I'm not really sure why they are so bereft of ideas about what's around the corner, because every other person knows what the issues are loud and clear. It stuns me that they don't. So do do you see um, governments within Europe or in Australia having a clearer purpose? Is Is this a peculiar British disease? No, I think it's a Western malaise, and I think that's why everyone's getting so caught up in culture wars, because the old battle lines of economics are not existing anymore. People don't form or form their tribes around those economic dividing lines because we've had two major shocks now that show they don't work, and we've got every centre-right government shoveling money out the door that would make Labor governments blush in the old days. Um, So I think that's more the problem. But I think this opens up a really fascinating debate about where we go as a society and an economy. I'm just not sure that there's any government really having that honest conversation. Uh, I don't think that you can operate on this basis that everyone wants a tax cut anymore. Um, There's lots of polling that suggests people are actually now happier to pay higher taxes if they see it going towards the public services they expect. Mm. Chaps, I'm just going to address everyone here. If you if, if you don't ask questions, we're going to have to wrap this one up um, much earlier than I'd like to. So please do put questions down in the Q&A box if you've got questions. And we've got, got two great panellists here, so don't waste your opportunity. Tristan, for me, there are parallels. I've, I've spent quite some time in France um, you know, looking at Marine Le Pen and the Front National, Rassemblement National. Huh? Um, and the echoes for me, it seems to me, that France takes for granted its uh, European Union membership. Um, Yet you've got many of the same conditions there that could lead to a similar fracture um, in terms of your sort of political direction. Is is that something that, I mean, obviously um, you've got a new president who's who's, uh, scraped through this time, but that must sort of echo. What what does it echo with your fellow writers, your fellow correspondents here in London? French um, ones I'm thinking of. The thing is, Emmanuel Macron is, I would say, is, like Rishi Sunak and his trust, is out of his depths in a way. He doesn't understand the French public. He was elected, as you say, because more he was more elected because people didn't want Marine Le Pen as a president than anything else. He's completely out of touch every time. And this is why he liked Boris Johnson in a way. And he looked at Boris Johnson and said, wow, this, how does this guy who is coming from the elite how, the, how, the, how can he connect so well with the public? Because every time my Macron, Emmanuel Macron is meeting French people, it's it's a disaster. Every time you have stories in the press saying that he told them, like, he's so condescending with French people that it doesn't work. And clearly today, if there was a referendum on, on Frexit, as we call it in France, 
I would believe France might leave the EU. That's why they will never be referendum. It's that close. George Osborne has a famous quote about this where he reckons he was talking to Macron back in before he was president. And Macron says, well, we'd never ask the French people if they want to exit because they would say yes. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I, that's why I have no doubt about this. Remember in 2005, there was a, there was a big referendum about the, the European constitution and the French said, we don't want it by 55%. And it was almost 20 years ago. So now it's even deeper. The Front National is even stronger. You have the extreme, the, the left who is now much more Eurosceptic than before. You know what? People don't, there is something going on with the EU, as you said, Latika, with capitalism. And for a lot of French people, the EU is a big capit capitalistic organization and okay. they don't trust the EU anymore. And they don't trust the EU politicians because well, they believe that they're not directly elected. And they're like, who are those guys? And we don't feel represented. We, the, the issue with the borders, of course, no borders in the EU, it's, it's part of the EU. But that's why people are like, does it work? Do we want to see uh, workers from Poland on our Bulgaria go coming to France mm. who are paid a lower wage than, than in France? So... You know what? There is a big, big, big issue. And that's why there will never be a referendum in France. It's much too risky. And they know okay. it. One thing we haven't spoken about at all on this is the war in Ukraine. And um, the, the thing that the British government would put out was global Britain. This is the idea of having a much more international perspective, you know, less held down by, um, by Europe and being more nimble. And you could argue we have made a significant impact in terms of supporting Ukraine. Is that something that resonates with both with your readership? Uh, I think we've had a little freeze from Nicholas. Yes, I think so. Do you want to start that one, Tristan, or shall I? Yes, yes. As you, as, as you want, as you want. I think maybe maybe you, Tristan. Okay. So clearly uh, in France, well, the, the, the way Emmanuel Macron... Oh, oh we sorry. got you, Nicholas. Yes. Okay. So I was just starting to say that the way Emmanuel Macron reacted to the Ukraine invasion was, of course, at the opposite side of the way Boris Johnson reacted. And it's very interesting because... Uh, two years ago, I went to a very small conference organized at the French embassy with French diplomats and think tanks and British diplomats and think tanks about Russia. And it was very interesting because the British were very angry with the French, saying Emmanuel Macron believes that Russia and Putin can be, can be bring back among the... Western countries that we can talk to him is very is and in fact is dividing the Europeans and Western countries. What he's doing is irresponsible, and the French has to stop their policies because they are making us weaker and they are emboldening Russia. And when was this? When which time period are you talking about? It was in March 2020. Right. Okay. And that's very interesting because this is exactly what happened. Like the French didn't listen to what they were told here, clearly. Yeah. Emmanuel Macron still was saying nothing will happen, they will never invade, and it happens. And even when you've seen since then, the reaction of Macron was like trying to please put him. Of course, you need someone to try to put the pressure down and yeah. keep contact. But the way he was doing it was not well at all. It was more perceived as dividing the West against Russia and giving more power in a way, more say to Putin. So, okay. and and it's very interesting because every time, as I, as I said, Boris Johnson is perceived as a clone and most of the elites in France, they hate Boris Johnson. So even what he was doing about Ukraine, they were always finding a way to criticize him and say, yeah, of course, he's doing this, but he's only doing this for his career. He's missing it. That's interesting. Exactly. That's interesting. So yeah. I feel like you need international therapy to work through the British-French relationship sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but would you, I mean, Natika, briefly on that, and then I've got some good, good questions coming up and a great question coming from Lurs Tart in, in just a second. Uh, people taking, I mean, Britain, it would seem to me, does have a serious role to offer and is taking the lead in Ukraine. And is that... Is that one of the few areas in which we still have some respect, if you like? 
Oh, look, Britain has a lot of respect and a lot of admiration. It's only people inside Britain that seem to not understand how admired Britain is around the world, to be honest. Um, Britain's loved in a lot of parts of the world, particularly in the Antipodes. And don't underestimate, uh, take the politics out of it, don't underestimate the soft power, cultural power that you have. Um, when we write stories, for instance, on the Platinum Jubilee and that Platinum Jubilee concert, it goes bananas. People are super, super interested in what happens here. There's a lot of people-to-people -people links through uh, the old, uh, dare we say it, colonial days. Um, yes, uh, Ukraine leadership has been one of those many aspects, but I think there's been a great welcoming of Britain's tilt beyond Europe. One mm. of the great frustrations for me when I moved here, which was early 2016, was that there was, seemed to be no foreign policy debate that didn't begin and end with Europe in the UK. And that really yeah. frustrated me because I could see what was coming ahead for um, Britain on China. We just had this debate over many years in Australia and, and landed on a, a pretty tough position. And I, could, I knew that this was going to happen for Britain. And sure enough, it did in a very tortured and I think unnecessarily public way, in a, a way that actually harmed or strained, uh, put some tension that didn't need to be there in between the Five Eyes Alliance, for example, between primarily Australia, the US and, and the UK. And then, of course, you come in with AUKUS. Now, that really, to be honest, is much more an Australia-US alliance. But the Australians really do want... Britain to buy into that. We see it as extremely critical that Britain turns its eye to the Indo-Pacific, uh, increases its presence there, increases certainly its understanding and strategic interests there, and then stays there. And so one of the great things about AUKUS that's going to happen is we're going to build a huge port facility off WA uh, where Britain and the US can come and park their subs, their Navy vessels there, and spend months at a time operating in that part of the world. For mm. us, that is huge. And I don't think that's something that would have happened uh, maybe 10 years ago. I don't think it's something that necessarily would have happened under Cameron and Osborne. It's happening under this government. And I think that that is actually a stamp that will go forward and be a legacy for a new Labor government as well. Some of these things are, are really important to get embedded. And interestingly, in both uh, the US and Australia, it's been the right that has embedded that position on China uh, into a bipartisan one where the left then comes into power and takes it on. That's happened in the US. It's happened in Australia. I think, too, it will happen here. And, and these are really critical legacies. Okay, so you're, in, uh, you're giving us more weight than perhaps the press would give credit to the government for in terms of, I mean, if we, I, I've always thought that this sense of global Britain, it was really, it was about words. It really didn't have much impact. If you couldn't actually strike proper trade deals overseas uh, and you couldn't replace the deficit you had with the EU and the, the red tape there, um, you, you're again, you know, what, what, what was it worth? But actually saying it is worth quite a bit. Um, Lois Tart, you've got a good question on a different subject. Go ahead. Just say where you are as well, Lois. Um, I'm currently in Sydney. You can hear me, I take it. Um, really, it's a question. I'm, I'm listening to the debate, too, about um, is capitalism broken, all those particular debates, particularly housing affordability. Um, my background is actually housing uh, policy, housing for older people. Um, but we're also getting a very strong debate here about the role of the central bank, particularly issues around inflation targeting, um, et cetera. And what I would well, I mean, I also understand there's a similar debate happening about this in the, uh, with the Federal Reserve in the US. Are similar debates happening in the UK and Europe about what is the role of the central bank? Have they got it right? Um, and should we change some of their you know, mandate or roles? Well, it's been a key part of the of the debate this past week. Latika, do you want to mention Yeah, Lois, a great question. And, and hi to you in Sydney. It's nice to hear such a, a beautiful, comforting accent. Um, it, that has come up uh, in, in spades in the Tory leadership debate. So uh, the candidate, Liz Truss, who's basically seen as the right-wing candidate, whereas Rishi Sunak seen as the moderate candidate, Liz has been openly questioning uh, the central bank 
openly questioning monetary policy, criticising them for printing money too long and holding interest rates too low for too long. So that is absolutely going to be a live debate should Liz Truss become the, cha- uh, become the Prime Minister, which is very lucky, uh, likely. I don't think it will be as much of an issue if Rishi becomes uh, the Prime Minister. He's the Chancellor that uh, oversaw a lot of that time of the policy, so he's got no interest really in reforming it. But I think watch this space because Truss is certainly tipped to win this race and she has a huge amount of support behind her from MPs who want that same sort of reform and questioning of the central bank here. Just don't just give us the European perspective, because obviously the central bank in Europe is a sacred position and, um, you know, no one country can fire the, um, the, the head of the central bank apart from Germany, possibly. There was still some debate about uh, what uh, the European uh, Central Bank is doing. Uh, not as much, of course, as what Liz Truss was doing, not as much as what the US and, and Australia, but there, there is still a debate now happening for the same reason, like uh, the European Central Bank just, the, the rates went up this week for the first time in many, many years. It was a big shock for everyone and they are still very low and they will have to go higher. To, fl- to fight inflation. But so there is a debate, but as you say, it's when you have so many countries who is allowed to, to contest what's happening in, uh, in, in Japan Central Bank, it's much more difficult than if it is a national. Okay. Uh, we're going to wrap this up shortly. But what I want to do, both of you, is you look into your crystal balls. Um, we, I think the headwinds are pretty nasty. Um, so give us an idea of what a future Conservative Prime Minister is going to have to deal with in the next of six months to a year, Tristan, to start with. First, I think uh, the, um, the next Prime Minister, well, the fact that Boris Johnson is, is out is a good way to rebuild a new connection with the EU. Because everybody in the EU, in France, but in Brussels, will be happy to blame Boris for the mess that has been happening for the last three years. So getting so, rid of uh, Boris... When does that leave the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is um, probably too complex for people to be interested in, but is actually a fundamental part of EU-UK relations and yes. also peace in Northern Ireland? Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Rishi Sunak, if he wins the, 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 the election, will try to find a way. For him, the main issue in politics is the economy. He wants better trade with the EU. He wants better right. relations. And, and for this, you need a, a, a new solution on the Northern Ireland Protocol. If this is trust, let's see, because she was sent by Boris Johnson officially to try to find a solution on it. And in fact, it's just been very, very hardcore on this, on, on this issue. So it's, well... It's it's a bit it's a bit difficult to know. Well, and as we but said, you'd see that friction possibly remaining there with 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 Liz Truss. But beyond yeah, but- that, that it's 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 very hard to see how this government can be seen to deliver deliver on the promises that it's given in terms of you know if you if you're sticking to that levelling up agenda, if you're being more populist and uh, expanding employment and well, not employment so much, but actually delivering more services. Yeah. But it's, um, well, the thing is, for the, for the moment, as we know, they are here to please the, the conservative members who are very radical people, uh, politically. Uh, when they are in power, it will be very different. They will have to talk to the country, to the world country, yeah. to be able to win the next election. So they will have to find solutions. They will have to be much more moderate than what they are now. So we could have good surprises. Yeah. Okay, let's take an excuse. I, I saw a tail waft past your screen as well. Um, I yes, have to it's confess, my cat. Your, cat, <laughs> your cat's considerably quieter than my dog, who's also here on holiday he's, in Cornwall, yeah, and barking at the other dogs. On her best behaviour. I think it's a domestic primarily, cost of living, inflation, the NHS, I think, are the big issues here. Inflation, I think there could be some serious problems if they don't get a grip on this, which is what Sunak is campaigning on in the Tory leadership contest. I actually don't know how people are absorbing the costs as they are going up right now. Energy is tripling, if not quadrupling for some people. Food's becoming a lot more expensive. And I've really started to notice even in London in the last few weeks, things are just starting to quieten down after a very, very busy June. Uh, So I think all the signs are there of some really, really worrying economic times ahead. Uh, I think energy 
energy is the next big issue, how they solve and square that, particularly if Russia uh, does uh, make good on its threats and cuts off gas from Europe and then the subsidiary shocks to the UK on that. We saw what happened when they had to pay record high prices for electricity on the on the heatwave day. And then I think the two danger zones I see for the new prime minister is probably... I think this Tory leadership debate has been very destructive for the Tories in many ways, but one of them has been uh, the open questioning of climate change consensus. Now, that's something I think the British should be very proud of to this point, that they've managed to keep this as a bipartisan issue, legislate net zero and get there and, and have a, a course to get there that's semi-credible. You are now seeing a lot of the right wing of the Tory party who've feasted on the Brexit flesh now moving over to climate change and starting to say, well, net zero is an arbitrary target. Um, you know, we, we don't have to do it by then. We should slow this green madness down. I think this is a really, really danger, a big danger zone for the Tories to get involved in. If they start whittling away at the consensus, you are going to have what's happened in Australia, and that's a complete breakdown of energy policy resulting from political failure to sort this out. Uh, and I'm not saying that we can't have a debate about how best to get to net zero, but I think if you're even starting to question the target and the goal you're heading towards, you're in trouble. Um, and but I think... That matter, do you think that matters to voters? I mean, they're more concerned about the cost of living. That's the key thing is their wallets and their heating bills to start with. And are they going to... We're going to say, we're going to give you cheaper bills and you know what, we're going to have more coal and it doesn't matter. I think voters know on a 43-degree degree day in England that they don't have air conditioning and that they sweltered and that things were very difficult and they probably wouldn't be able to manage a week or a month of that. In Australia, in my country, you're seeing absolutely horrific, uh, extreme weather events. People know this is not normal. That doesn't mean they don't know there's a cost and they've got to pay some cost. I think the debate is around how do we best mitigate while managing those costs? And that's the conversation they need to have, not about whether net zero or reducing emissions is madness or not. You're starting to get climate denialism uh, opening up here in the UK. And I think that is really, really worrying. Uh, the second part I think is really worrying for the Tories is any time they want to go back and feast on that dead corpse of Brexit that, that they've put onto the plate here, it's telling people they couldn't get it done themselves. And this is where I think the Northern Ireland Protocol is such a problem for them. Anytime they're talking about that, people say, well, hang on, you've been in power all this time. You asked for this referendum. We gave you what you wanted, which was to vote leave. We gave you your dream Brexit Prime Minister in Boris Johnson and an 80-seat majority, and you're still telling me you can't get it done? I think these are really... Um, big grey areas for the next prime minister heading into an a next election. And I think short of having that kind of charismatic connection that Boris had, I, I can't see Sunak or Liz pulling off huge majorities, if, if not even losing that election. Listen, both of you, thank you very much indeed. Tristan, have you got your book there next to you? Just want you to hold it up. Dans le cas, il y a des, uh, des gens qui, qui parlent français. Here it is. Is it in French, Tristan, or is it in English? No, it's only in French, unfortunately. Uh, what a shame. Unfortunately, no, 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 it's only in French. Brilliant. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much indeed. I'm so grateful to, for, to both of you. Um, and um, I hope we can have you back um, back again sometime soon. Thank you both very much indeed. Tristan de Montalm and Latika Bork, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicolas. Thanks, Nicolas.